Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Yining Chang. And with me today is Professor Robbie Shilliam, and we're here to talk about his new book, Decolonizing Politics and Introduction, published in 2021 by Polity Press. Robbie Shilliam is Professor of International Relations at Johns Hopkins University. He researches the political and intellectual complicities of colonialism and race in the global order, and he is co-editor of the Roman and Littlefield book series, Quilombo, International Relations and the Colonial Question. Robbie was a co-founder of the Colonial, Postcolonial, Decolonial Working Group of the British International Studies Association, and he's a long-standing active member of the Global Development Section of the International Studies Association. Over the past six years, Robbie has co-curated with community intellectuals and elders a series of exhibitions in Ethiopia, Jamaica, and the UK, which have, Rastafar- which have brought to light the histories and significance of the Rastafari movement for contemporary politics. Based on original primary research in British imperial and post-colonial history, this work now enjoys an online presence as a teaching aid at www.rastafari-in-motion.org. Robbie also works with Universal Development of Rastafari, IDOR, to retrieve histories of the Rastafari presence in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. In his new book, Decolonizing Politics and Introduction, Robbie argues that political science emerged as a response to the challenges of imperial administration and the demands of colonial rule. While not all political scientists were colonial cheerleaders, their thinking was nevertheless framed by colonial assumptions that influence the study of politics to this day. This book offers students a lens through which to decolonize the main themes and issues of political science, from human nature, rights and citizenship, to development and global justice. The book is not content with revealing the colonial legacies that still inform the discipline. It also introduces students to a wide range of intellectual resources from the post-colonial world, that will help them think through the same themes and issues more expansively. Decolonizing politics is a much-needed critical guide for students of political science. It shifts the study of political science from the centers of power to its margins, where the majority of humanity lives. Ultimately, the book argues that those who occupy the margins are not powerless. Rather, marginal positions might afford a deeper understanding of politics than can be provided by mainstream approaches. Robbie, welcome to the New Books Network. It's good to have you here. It's great to be here, Yumi. Congratulations on the new book. I really genuinely enjoyed reading it. And I'd love if you could get us started by telling us about how you came to write this book. Ah, okay. Um, well, someone asked me to. That's, <laughs> that's the honest answer. <laughs> um, so Polity Press, uh, I've, I think they're doing a, um, a whole series of books which are uh, uh, trying to introduce to students um, the 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 scope and the depth of what it might mean to decolonize um, disciplines. Yeah, so they asked me to do politics, and I kind of said yes. <laughs> um, part, partly as well because um, I think that there's a um, there's a need to build capacity and infrastructure for um the pursuit of 
more r rigorous questioning of the complicity of empire and colonialism in the, the kind of politics that we usually study in political science. Um, and so this is part of that building of an infrastructure whereby undergrads can be introduced to these issues at a kind of early stage and work with them and, and, and grow with them. And um, the the book, as you mentioned, is part of the, the series and um, alongside Ali Maikji's also a fantastic contribution, Decolonizing Sociology. But I wanted to ask you also about your own engagement and relationship with the word decolonize, given that it's, um, it's fraught with issues and tensions and some scholars stay away from it. They use words like reparative or global or even comparative. So could you tell me about how you think through those things and how and why you work under the term to the extent that you do? Well, you know, all terms and all concepts can be, um, are, are always um, utilized for a, a number of different reasons and, and, and for a number of different purposes, right? And terms which um, are part of a very real and embedded politics um, historically and, 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 in, and contemporaneously. Um, when they get into the academy, they tend usually to be kind of neutered, right? They tend to be, and this is what institutions do, right? And, you know, that's how it is. So decolonizing um, has over the past few years, certainly, um, certainly in the UK, less so probably in the US, because there are different um, terms which which take the space for, for various historical reasons. But, but say in the UK, especially decolonizing has become, you know, in good part co-opted co by equality and diversity um, kind of managerialism, right? Well, people die over terms and blood is spilled over terms. And um, those terms which you think are um, terms which have been mobilized for a progressive politics, for a politics of uh, reparation of wrongs, uh, for equality um, between individuals and amongst peoples, um, for terms that have been used for a um, more audacious and capacious conception of human potential. Um, you know, there's a certain commitment there to it, regardless of how they get co-opted. So I'm very much about commitment. And um, I'm I'm, it's not the only phrase I use, but I'm committed to decolonizing because decolonizing didn't begin in the university and university is just catching up. And even if the university ends up having enough of decolonizing and moves on to the other thing, other things, the, the, the issue and the commitment and the project remain. In the book itself, you start with Aristotle, which you... In, that's the first sentence in the book, right? Let's start with the figure who is conventionally known as the father of political science, Aristotle. And then you kind of explain this a little bit. Um, you talk about uncanniness and intimacy. Could you tell us a little bit more about that starting point um, and how it structures the project that the book then undertakes? Mm. So, of course, you know, one of the knee-jerk reactions to... Um, and any any project to decolonize the the, the study of politics um, will say, well, you know, colonialism 
European colonialism only began in, you know, the late 1400s um, and um, decolonizing, you know, only began in the early 1800s. Um, but Aristotle goes all the way back to, you know, third century BC. So, uh, so how can you say that the study of politics is, is, is fundamentally um, driven by colonial logic? So, so I started with Aristotle. All right, fine. <laughs> Let's go to Aristotle then. You know, and of course, Aristotle uh, is not a European. The Greeks did not see themselves as Europeans. They saw the Europeans as barbarians. Um, Aristotle was born in a, a, a settler colony, um, Stagiera. Um, the whole Greek method of spreading out across the Mediterranean was a, a settler colonial one. They had a different word for it, but but very basically and broadly, it was a it was a a process that we could, in some ways, at least um, recognize. Although before the Persian Wars, the assumptions of Greek civilizational superiority superiority over the other civilizations and peoples it shared the Mediterranean with was not there. So, you know, it's not exactly the same. I'm not saying that. Uh, but nonetheless, Aristotle lived in Athens as an immigrant. Uh, he couldn't own property. Um, he, um, he was worried about the, the effect that imperialism would have on citizenship in Athens. Um, he was implicated in one empire to the north, the Macedonian Empire. Um, and he was um, concerned about, obviously, the Persian Empire, right? So this is a world of empires impinging on what Aristotle understood to be the polis, which actually was modelled after a settler colony of his birth, and, and about the prospects of citizenship. So Aristotle is a critical thinker in that respect. He's thinking about empire and the way in which it might possibly undermine the pursuit of the good life um, um, through uh, collective deliberation of citizens. But at the same time, he's very much wedded to the hierarchy, which allows for collective de deliberation towards premeditated pre ends um, amongst citizens. And that hierarchy depends upon um, the citizens having leisure time to do the deliberation. And it's the women, the wives and the slaves, etc., who actually do the work of the household, um, which allows the citizens to, 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 to have that time and space to do their politics. So part of setting up setting up the book with Aristotle is to say, well, let us go to where you say there is no empire and, and, and let's reimagine Aristotle as a thinker, as a critique, as a critic of empire, amongst other things, of course, um, such that the very basic terms of political science, the polis and the citizen can only be made sense of in relation to empires and imperialism impinging on them. But let's also note that Aristotle is actually quite a hierarchical thinker. And he wants to preserve citizenship, even if that means preserving slavery and patriarchy. And so I end the book putting Aristotle in conversation with a um, Chicana cultural theorist, um, Gloria Anzaldúa, who, who passed um, a decade ago, a bit more. Um, and Anzaldúa is very similar in some ways to thinking about politics. She thinks about it from the borderlands, but she's convinced that um, any 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 politics which seeks to preserve the centre as it is 
is going to actually be doing violence to the borderlands. So, and Zaldua, unlike Aristotle, wants to break the hierarchies. And what's really important is that Aristotle is talking about politics to the citizens. He never conceives that it would be a useful or worthy venture to talk about politics to the slaves or to the women, the wives. Uh, and Zaldua wants all of these people to talk to each other about, about politics. So there's a certain, you know, what we would call a sense of epistemic um, justice there, which is, which is going on, on in Anzaldu, which is not there in Aristotle. And also kind of helps to set up this book with a long history of the discipline, which um, is very much the tone of each chapter. You um, historicize each, sub, each of the subfields that you touch on. Um, and that's how the book proceeds. It takes us through four subfields, political theory, political behavior, comparative politics, and IR in that order. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time on the political theory chapter in particular. I really liked it. Um, one of the reasons being that you put you explain Kant so clearly. Um, and in this chapter, you put Kant in conversation with Sylvia Winter to, in order to recontextualize the questions that political theory asks about humanity, reason, and rights. Can you tell us more about that pairing as well and what you think it excavates? Well, I don't know if I was an idiot doing that because <laughs> Kant and Sylvia Winter are probably one of, two of the hardest thinkers you're going to read, right? <laughs> so, you know, I'm sorry about that. Um, um, but I think it's I think it's important because um, Kant is a he's not just a philosopher of rights as we would as we would pick him up in political science. Uh, he's an anthropologist. Yeah, you know, he's the, the he's the first dude in the German Academy to bring anthropology um, to bear on on the humanities, right? In in Germany, right? Um, and Aristotle's speculative philosophy develops in tandem and entwined with the development of his anthropology. And his anthropology is effectively a cartography of race. That's what it is. And, and, and it seeks to uh, answer the question of the meaning and significance of the differentiation of humanity as it expands across the world into, into races, right? And he introduces the term La Raza into the German Academy as well, right? Um, Kant um, is um, an incredibly racist thinker, and I don't mean that in a moral sense. I mean that his understanding of the differentiation of competencies between amongst humanity on account of race is fundamental to his speculative philosophy, such that at the end of his life. Kant is basically arguing that um, only the white race, and amongst them, of course, only the white men, right, have the competency to to um, to reason a priori and to cast judgment on a world of difference. Now, um, in doing that, Kant makes race a category of the noumenal, i.e., uh, an a priori category. Right. So you might think about that. Right. So so, you know, it's, it's a category of his pure reason. And then um, um, practical reason is how you navigate a world of r r racialized difference. 
Sylvia Winter is interesting because Sylvia Winter deals with the biological just like Kant does. Kant introduces ideas about the phylum, about germs, right, and about heredity. Um, and 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 Winter, you know, is all about that as well, except she takes it in a different direction. And um, Winter basically makes the argument that um, part of our human nature, I, how we understand our nature, human nature as humans, is to um, build um, narratives about um, who we are in distinction to who we are not. And that these distinctions become racialized. And this is very much to do with 1492 and its, and, and its consequences for the humanities, right? And that um, we, we reproduce ourselves, our autopoiesis is not simply genetic, but it's also ideational, right? In other words, the stories we tell about ourselves in distinction to who we are not is actually part of the biological um, uh, maintenance of ourselves. It's all to do with various kind of um, chemicals and, and dopamines and all that kind of stuff. But this is all linked to a reward and a punishment system about whether, whether we think we're stepping outside the bounds of who we are. And, and, and Winter is very much talking about that in, 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 in racialized terms. But Winter ends up talking about a new kind of human, which is not Homo sapiens, the discerning human, but Homo narens. In other words, the human who narrates themselves as human. And she ends up in a position saying um, the next cosmological innovation of, of humankind has to be that we understand ourselves all to be the narrating human and that no one can posit a biological truth about humanity and an overrepresentation of that biological truth as standing in for humanity as a whole, i.e. the white man is the exemplar human, right? Um, instead of that, we actually have to, um, uh, we, we have to come to terms with the fact that all of us have the same capacity to narrate ourselves as humans. Now, Kant ends up making biology a category of pure reason, race. Winter would say that, um, Kant's pure reason is simply another um, another practical reason, i.e. It's, it's just one more narration. So there are huge stakes at play in here in terms of how we understand the human infrastructure behind, um, how, behind who we think has the competency to exercise and, and enjoy and defend rights. And it's interesting to me that you then wrap up that chapter by after having brought Silver Winter into this deliberately unintuitive um, pairing from the margins, you wrap it up by pointing us towards Catherine McKittrick and other wonderful scholars who don't formally work under the rubric of political theory. And um, that, that spoke to me and I want to ask you about that because I have, you know, I have so many critically minded friends who very gladly left political theory and political science behind and went to do work in anthropology, sociology, queer studies, and so on. And it's a productive thing being friends with them because I have to keep reflecting on what makes me stay in political science, political theory, um, if similar and work is being done very, very well elsewhere. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that and what remains and where it needs to go. Mm -hmm. 
Well, of course, someone like Catherine McKitchie is 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 a is a political theorist, right? <laughs> you know, in 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 the yeah, in the basic sense of the term, right? But of course, but institutionally, she's situated, you know, in in gender studies and geography, right? As far as I I understand it, yeah. Um, and um, there is a whole slew of people coming out of, for example, the Caribbean Philosophical Association, a couple of whom are associated with political theory people um, like Neil Roberts and, and Tony Bogues, um, but most of whom aren't, but are doing this work on decolonizing our conception of the human, shifting what Lewis Gordon calls the geography of reason in ways in which we don't in political theory. And I, and let me preface what I'm going to say with, with, with this, right? There are incredible sources in political theory and in the canon of critical political theory, which absolutely should be read. Yet the way in which political theory has reproduced itself is to posit, you know, in kind of Deleuzian terms, a major tradition and a minor tradition. And the major tradition is full of predominantly, guess what, white men. And the minor tradition is full of, guess what, predominantly white European men, right? Now, the, the question is this. Is it possible to decolonize political theory if the geography of reason that you're deploying is still a colonial one? That's my question. It's simply that. And, you know, you might get people in political theory using glissant, right? But they only use glisson, and I'm being hyperbolic here, but still, they're only using glisson because, you know, they can understand him as the Caribbean Deleuze, not, not as glisson, right? Um, so, um, you know, to what degree, for example, does political theory have, have a good faith and, and committed engagement with um, black studies? I, I, very little, with indigenous studies even. Right. So there's a, you know, uh, there's and an, that engagement needs to shift the geography of reason. It can't simply be, oh, they sound a bit like us. So we'll take those bits. Right. Now, I, I get my theorist friends. Right. And and, you know, I love them and I understand why it's actually probably harder to decolonize political theory than any other subfield of political science. And partly that's because. um Political theorists are put under in immense pressure to say that even though they are an expert on one dude who comes from one port city called Konigsberg, right? Nonetheless, they can mobilize that material to explain, you know, um, humanity at large, to explain questions of war and peace and, and, and the evolution of humanity across the world. Now, imagine putting someone under that kind of pressure. It's entirely unfair. Right. You know, why can't you just be an expert in German political thought? And, and why is it? Yeah, you know, because, of course, that's what that is exactly the assumption which is given to people who study Caribbean political thought. Can you can you explain Europe, like Caribbean political thought? Can you explain Asian, you know, East Asian politics with that? Well, of course you can't. Well, then why should you put the pressure on people who study, you know, a couple of dudes from 19th century East, East, East Prussia, right, to, to explain the whole world? So I want my 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 political theorists to, to to have that pressure alleviated from them so that there can actually be space for proper dialogues, deep dialogues and a shift in the, and a pluralization of the geography of reason. If I could push along the same lines in the political behavior chapter as well, or similar lines, at least, 
So here, just to reconstruct it a little bit, the argument is that the study of political behavior grew out of the science of race heredity. You historicize this by looking at figures like Walter Badgett, the editor-in-chief of The Economist, and then you bring in Fanon's writings on the psyche of the colonized as the counterpoint. I'm thinking about a present-day political behaviorist who might read this historicization and think, well, okay, that's, that's not what we do anymore. We don't talk about normal versus abnormal behavior. We run experiments and surveys to find out more about how voters behave at the polls. So what would you, what would you want them to take away besides, oh, that's a disturbing fact about past. Cool. Moving on. Mm. Mm. So there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a couple of responses to that, right? Um, one is the notion that a um, impartial uh, and objective method um, can um, in, inoculate oneself from all the bad politics, right? That that's one thing. And and um, if if we look back at the history of political behaviour and behaviour, well, behaviourism then behavioralism, um, it's usually the case that 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 argument is made to that effect so for example people like david easton who 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 you know are in good part responsible for 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 reintroducing uh, you know i guess what people would call the scientific method into the study of politics in the post world war 2 era you know his first publication is on is on walter baju the, the the guy who you mentioned and walter baju was um Basically convinced that um, that white Europeans had learnt um, a uh, had learnt a lesson through willpower to drill themselves in the art of cu- of custom and habit, and that that allowed them to develop civilization, and that smoothed the brain um, of all its crevices, whilst other races had deeply creviced brains which captured irrationality and mysticism in them and they never had the willpower to drill themselves in habit so this is walter baju right now easton uses walter baju um as a uh, as part of his attempt to kind of disarm what he saw as political theory but political theory for him was basically these germans who had come over during world war ii and had a very skeptical and pessimistic outlook on human nature for obvious reasons right that David considered um, would actually undermine the premises of any any um, political science that sought to preserve and um, perfect um, democracy. So he used Baju um, to basically say that um, um, we 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 cannot expect um, uh, human beings to be perfectly rational and perfect um, uh, um, participants in, in, in democracy. Um, that's not the kind of liberalism which we, which we are subscribing to. We are subscribing to a kind of sceptical liberalism, but nonetheless, we will pursue this through, our, uh, through a, 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 a method of science and, and you know, in, inductive inquiry, which will allow us to, at, if not perfect, at least preserve um, the best elements of democracy, right? So, uh, and that's all, all in terms of you know behavior and public opinion. Yeah. So, um, if you fast forward to today, 
um, but people who do behavioralism, and of course, there's a whole prehistory to this in terms of the links between behavioralism and eugenics, and and in fact, um, um, behavioralism, in at least in some part, being a, a critical response to eugenics. Let me just put that in. But nonetheless, if you if you look at um, behaviorists today, you know that the, their whole argument would be that everyone is irrational. There are genes which get in the way. There are environmental factors that get in the way. There are group affiliations that get in the way. There are emotions that get in the way. Everybody's irrational. So of course, yeah. So how can you say that we are, you know, that 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 we have this kind of, you know, um, partializing and hierarchical logic in our in 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 our premises? And that's fine, and I agree. But then I ask, I would ask, um, who, what group of people amongst this incredibly warped humanity have, despite all their irrationalities, managed to construct a theory and a method of political science which seeks to um, redress those irrationalities so, such that democracy can function? Who and why them? Now think about how many experiments, not just in political science, but in social science in general. Think about how many experiments use, guess who, undergrad kids in on US campuses. And you think that's indicative of the world, right? And you might not say, well, it's not the claim I'm making. But but if if that partiality is not addressed, then that is in in inevitably and implicitly the claim that you're making. So again, who do people read in political behavior? Who are these magical people who, despite all their human-based irrationality, have managed to put their head above all that irrationality and contrive a method of study which can preserve democracy and, 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 and the best of the Enlightenment, you know, apparently being reason and, and accountability? And then let me ask you, well, maybe those who have suffered the most under that I've actually developed methods which may be a little bit more self-critical. So that's why I go to Fanon, you know, and his experiments, his psychiatric experiments in Algeria, where in order to um, repair the psyches of Muslim Algerians, he has to confront the fact that um, that French democracy has, on the one hand, incorporated Algeria as a department, and but on the other hand, has consistently told Algerians, Muslim Algerians especially, that they are not citizens, that they cannot be citizens, right? Now you think about, say, the US, and you, you, you tell me, you know, what's the fundamental um, um, rupture in American politics? You know, it's not even immigrants, right? It's the fact that, it's the fact that citizens are defined and differentiated in terms of those who have the competency and capacity to actually exercise democracy responsibly. And everybody else is under suspicion, right? You know, you could have a bunch of dudes who storm the, the Capitol on January the 6th, right? And, and a few people get killed, which is terrible, right? But now imagine the response to that if it's Black Lives Matter. And that they're all citizens. So, you know, that's what I would say. And, 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 and part of this is to say the book is not about um, damning any subfield. You know, there, there is useful knowledge to garner from all the subfields, and all the subfields are legitimate. That's not my point. The point is, is that political science is well overdue a deep and critical reflection of the foundational colonial and racist logics 
from which each subfield developed in the first place. And and all I'm saying is, you know, for those of us who work in the in 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 the discipline, let us have careful and considered conversations about that. And let us not get mora- let morality get in the way. How can you say that I'm a good dude? Yeah, we're, we're all good dudes. How can you say that? You know, I have science. Well, well, well. You know, as Fanon would say, science was part of uh, was part of uh, you know colonization. Science science conscripted to justify um, colonialism was why the, the 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 patients which he took care of, the Algerian Muslim patients he took care of, didn't trust doctors. Right now, now fast forward to today, and you know all, all the contentions over public health. So that's all I'm saying. Right. You know, let 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 us not use morality to um, defer a well overdue and systematic critical evaluation of the premises, the foundational premises of our subfields. And and if we do that, maybe we do better and more salient and edifying political science. There is a really, um, really important question in there about difference and comparison that I want to come back in a minute. But you were talking about subfields um, and the discipline as a whole. And you do mention um, in, in the final chapter on IR that you know, that's, that subfield has perhaps been a bit more amenable to the decolonizing impulse. And my own view is that that's, that's true. That's really true, especially where scholars take a more historical approach. And you hint a little bit at the possible reasons why this is the case. You you suggest that maybe it's because IR was more directly and obviously a product of the imperial project. But I wonder if you could talk us through that a little bit more. Yeah, um, it it was, but but then so was political political science <laughs> per se, right? Um, especially if you look at its kind of you know institutional foundation in late nineteenth century US, right? Um, I think what where it has been a little bit more accommodating is because unlike the other subfields, and this is a question of degree rather than, you know, categorical difference, but to a good degree, IR has always been far more pessimistic about the uh, potential for democracy or global democracy, right? Right. And so that, has allowed it to not have to defend certain premises of um, hierarchy and and um, exemplarity of the human condition, which underpin comparative politics for sure, political behavior and political theory. At the same time, though, um, that pessimism uh, is is also part of colonial logic. The, the pessimism is if we couldn't create peace, no one else can. <laughs> and you know, in 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 that chapter, you know, I I I I I contrast that kind of thinking, which comes from you know what they call the English school and the people who created this concept of international society, was if which is effectively if effectively a kind of nomenclature coming out of the um, Commonwealth of Nations, which is what the British Empire turned into. There's a a big correspondence between the two, right? But anyway, international society comprised of, you know, basically a a handful of diplomats, most of whom are um, are, are, are European and um, certainly the leading ones, or or they are using um, particular European traditions and natural law, says, says the English school. 
um, and certainly hardly any of them women, right? Um, and and you know the argument from from the English school is you know if we if we if we couldn't create peace then you can't create peace. So the best is to mitigate against the worst excesses of war. And you know I I moved to one of the examples I used nuclear free and independent um, Pacific movement which is comprised of Pacific women um, who um, who have a very different take on what comprises international society um, and of what the, the, the causes of, of, of peace uh, or the determinants of peace are. And the determinants of peace are, guess what? Decolonization, self-determination for indigenous peoples, such that there is a potential not to have to use land and sea to do nuclear experimentation. Very simple, right? Now the the other the English School of International Society is all about well, you know, we might have to do nuclear testing. I mean, I'm 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 kind of extrapolating this, so forgive me, yeah. But we might have to do nuclear testing, you know, to keep the peace because the peace is imperfect, and you know all this kind of stuff. Um, but nuclear free and independent Pacific movement said if there was not military imperialism in the Pacific, there would be no nuclear testing. Simple as right. So. Um, uh, uh, part, part, so I, it is true that IR is a little bit more open to that because of its, you know, m much more pessimistic outlook on, on on human nature. But that pessimism was always part of colonialism. There's the very idea, the, the mission civilatrice, that you know, the civilizing mission which came out in the late 19th century, was actually a very pessimistic concept. It came out of the French um, being unable to um to to con control and put in order in quotes um muslim algerians literally they said well you know if 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 they can't if they can't live in the hierarchy we're giving them then maybe they don't deserve deserve uh, you know a, a place in the hierarchy maybe we just have to actually order them maybe they can't be part of this democratic settlement Right. And how many times have you have you heard that? Well, you know, we wanted them to integrate. Right. You know, we wanted them to come into this system, you know, but they kept either refusing or wanting to do something different. And we kept telling them, this is John Stuart Mill in India. We kept telling them, look, you know, if you want progress, you have to have order first, order on our terms. And these people just didn't understand that they had to actually comport to our order first to get their progress. And guess what? Progress is always deferred. Because order is never attained. So, you know, this is this is so the pessimism in international relations is the opening, but it's not an opening which is outside of colonial logics, right? Yeah, and the pessimism that um that is kind of just such a big part of IR also arises out of the way IR deals very directly and inevitably with the problem, quote unquote problem of difference. Um, that brings me to this question of comparison that um, obviously runs through um, the, your critique of each sub, your discussion of each subfield. Um, so you focus on how political behavior operates on a binary of normal versus abnormal behavior, comparative politics on a binary of traditional versus modern societies, IR um, on civilized versus uncivilized. I'm simplifying a bit, but that's a key part of the inquiry um, and how you structure the critique. But I like the way you put it so clearly when you said that we assess and evaluate similarities and differences in order to orient ourselves to a diverse world. Comparison is not the problem in and of itself. 
So what would a decolonized comparative method look like to you? Is it about getting rid of the binary? Is it about disprivileging the reified West in the comparison? Or is that not enough? Mm -hmm. So I think it's, um, and, and again, we have to be careful. So one of the things, points I'm making in the book is, one of the premises of the book is that it, it, it's, even if it is the case, it's not particularly useful to, cons to believe that all politics per se have colonial logics and roots, right? So I, I, I wanna put that on the table, right? Uh, and I don't believe that all politics in the world, all political phenomena have, have um, colonial um, uh, logics and roots. And even if they did, that that would be um, fundamental to explaining them, right? But the, but the field, the discipline of political science does, right? And these subfields do have, have colonial logics and colonial roots, right? And that's the distinction I want to make. So if you're comparing, um, you know, um, constitutions of parties between Belgium and Germany, you go and do that, man. That's fine. You know what I mean? Like, you go on saying, right? And that's valuable stuff. So don't get me wrong, right? But the more foundational logics in comparative politics pertain to this difficulty that comparative politics has getting away from the state as its unit of, unit of analysis. And why that's important is, um, and I know in history and hopefully a bit more in comparative, people are thinking about empires and comparing empires. And I think that's very useful and that, that's a progression, right? Um, but, but the state as the unit of analysis um, is is incredibly disarming historic historically and, and even in contemporary terms so you know let me give you a suggestion about one of the dynamics of decolonization in the 20th century which wasn't just a french one you could see it in the british empire you could see it in other empires and their their, their afterlives too which is that at least some leaders of independence movements considered that colonies were designed fundamentally to be dependence, to be dependencies. And that there was a global division of labor which made that the case. And that even formal independence um, would not admit the fact that, or, or resolve the fact that in all other substantive ways, colonies were never designed to be independent. And why would you want to try and be in, why, if you were committed to self-determination, would you want a foe, a false independence? So many independence leaders said, we want had to have a different resolution of the empire. We want to have a republic. We want to, we want to have a commonwealth which does not hierarchically order us along lines of, 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 of race and competencies. And a lot of Siba Gravogi's work is about this, right? Um, we want to have actually, you know, we want to realize the promise of what a republic or a federation might be. So think in the British Empire, you had East African federations, you had uh, West Indies federation, you had Pacific federation. You know, people were very clear that, you know, the state is not necessarily the best mode to deliver self-determination. Now, what happened was all the emperors, empires were like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> What, that kind of equality? No, 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 no. So you, you go off and be independent. And as you're independent, you know, um, you, you'll, be, you'll, you'll remain dependent under us. And that was, you know, there's an argument to say that, 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 the, that the EU, that was one of its basic um, 
um, projects in the in the 1950s, you know, what they call Eurafrica, right, to re-embed Africa, the old African colonies, as subservient to the to to help actually to charge European um, regional development. Um, uh, uh, there's there's a book by um, Peter Hansen and um, oh my God, Stefan. Sorry, Stefan, I can't remember your surname, Stefan, um, called Eurafrica, where you could, you, you could read that, right? So anyway, you know, the move to independence, I'm not saying in any way, but in, in, some, in some instances was what happened after you, could, you, you wanted to actually resolve the global division of labor and its inequities, and if that wasn't allowed, and so you became independent. You know, there's a very famous foreign minister, English foreign minister, British foreign, foreign minister in 1820s or 30s, you know, when it talks about Argentina, castle races, you know, Argentina is free. And if we don't sadly misplay our hand, it is ours. Right? <laughs> so this is not a new thing either. So um, uh, now, there, you know, there were meetings like Bangdung, you know, where that very much became the, the norm that the post-colonial settlement would be self-determination through states. And we know all the contentions and paradoxes and, which came with that. But you know, let me tell you about what Britain did when it when it lost its empire. Firstly, it turned it into a commonwealth where it had some hierarchy, right? Secondly, when it lost the commonwealth, it went into the e European Economic Community to become the EU. Britain knew that by being forged in in the early 1700s from two colonial and colonial aspirational countries, Scotland and and, and, and England that Britain never had been a standalone nation state and that such a thing was kind of impossible. So it went from one federation, in quotes, or imperial hierarchy to another, to another. And then only last year did it finally bounce. No, this year, sorry. Did it finally bounce out of the EU, right? This is the very first time that Britain has become in, in, in any, any meaningful way a nation state. And I'll tell you, watch and see how well that, that that goes. It's not going to go well. Why not? So, you know, I, I'm kind of got off the comparative politics question. Sorry. But but but, you know, this is not this is not a secret. This is not a secret that that historically and analytically, the state, even if you can't do without it, is never um, the whole story. Right. Um, and there are reasons. Um, why, um, when they use modernization theory, some of the early comparativists, and I mean, who were you know, self-avowedly comparativists, taking political behavior into the international comparative realm in the 1950s and 60s, why they, um, some of the premises for comparison, they made um, in independence, formal independence, rather than comparing within uh, hierarchies of dependency, which is what most of the world has always been living under. And if you can't, if you can't do that with comparative politics, then you know you're missing you're missing something. And again, it's not that comparative politics isn't doesn't tell us a lot. It tells us a lot, but it's something quite significant which is missing. And I was basically you know um, contrasting some of the early um, comparativists to um, you know the Gabriel Almonds and Lucian Pies to um, actually the um, the Dar es Salaam school in Tanzania. And um, especially this uh, Guyanese um, historian called Walter Rodney, who wrote, wrote a 
popular book called How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, which no one reads in the academy because they think it's a popular book. But it's a damning, damning critique of modernization theory and, in fact, comparative politics. I'm glad you brought up um, the UK and its politics, actually, because I kind of wanted to bring us towards the question of institutions as well. Um, I'm really curious about this problem of relationship with the institution. You referenced this at the start when we, you were talking about co-optation of the, of, of the word decolonize. You yourself worked in the UK um, and New Zealand before coming to the US. How do you think about the relationship, your relationship and the relationship between the decolonizing project and the university? How does it differ between the British and the American universities? Mm-hmm. Well, let me start with New Zealand. Um, so in New Zealand, there, there's a thing called Māori studies, right? And Māori are the indigenous people, and there's Pacifica studies as well. Now, um, uh, and, and they're closely related, right? But let me just go, go to Māori studies just to make this point. Most of, pe- most of the people in the rest of the university assume that Māori studies is either anthropology or language. But Māori studies from my experience and from the people I knew when I worked in New Zealand, saw itself as a university within a university. And all knowledge systems have premises. So, you know, you know, the university has a premise that knowledge is accumulative and it's impartial, for example. Right? Māori studies have a premise. You know, one of the premises is that any issue, phenomena, problem in the world can in principle be explained by Māori knowledge systems. Not not to the not to the exclusion of other knowledge systems, right? But the Maori knowledge systems can be usefully applied to understand and explain these phenomena and issues, right? So there's a university within a university. Now, um, imagine that, and and imagine a place of learning where there is a deep plurality in the very premises which drive the knowledge um, the, the knowledge project. Um, would that not be a far more rigorous, far more exciting, far more edifying place to inhabit than one where um, there are a set of premises to the exclusions of others which drive the knowledge project and which drive it in ways which are not in dialogue but um, in monologue. So when you know the, the 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 deeper and and there are there are real life stakes in that at play in that there are people's lives there are lands right there are histories there are memories there are solutions to problems which are um obfuscated and silenced in a monologue um you know the decolonizing thing in the uk the uk is you know comes out of a commonwealth um the UK was the heart of empire, you know, the, 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 the elite, the cultural elite in, in, in England, you know, always considered that all the bad stuff of empire was done outside of England and thus English culture is pure and, and um, untainted. And, you know, you might have got a whiff of that when you were at Cambridge, <laughs> you knew, but you don't have to answer. Um, and, um, and, and so decolonizing was basically, as they call it, bringing the empire home. And that's what it is. And it's not a reactionary project. It's a project to seek a deeper and more edifying 
project of, of knowledge cultivation. That's what it is. It's not cancel culture. It's the opposite. Like you said, you know, bring Sylvia Winter into conversation with Kant. Bring the Dar es Salaam school into conversation with the um, the, the committee for comparative studies, whatever it was. You know, bring um, Pacifica women um, into conversation with the dudes the, the dudes at the English school, right? Bring Gloria Anzaldú into conversation with Aristotle. That's what it is. And in the US, it's, it's a very similar thing, but obviously for different different historical reasons to do with colonialism and empire. Decolonizing thing here is is much more to do with um, yeah, indigenous studies, to do with black studies, Africana, um, to do with um, you know what they call ethnic studies, and and to do with um, you know things to do with ab- abolition, right? And and that's fine. That's how it should be, right? Um, but again, you know, all these things are to actually um, take us at our word as intellectuals. We want to be critical self-reflective we want to be forever expanding and complicating and deepening our rep- repositories of knowledge and our sources this is what we this is what it is it's as simple as that we said it's that the a future lot. yeah we we said that a lot when when i when i was a member of one of those decolonizing working groups um as an undergrad um and I wanted to I wanted to hear you talk about how these how the arguments in the book and how the, all these thoughts translate into the classroom for you pedagogically because one of the questions we ran up against the most something you know, that we get thrown back at us is fine you know you can teach this at like third year um, undergrad at the graduate level but how do you do this with an with an introductory course for first years how do you if you don't come in and give them the canon they're not ever going to be able to do anything with that um that was something we we're always butting up against yeah so it's about a conversation right and um of course undergrads don't get given the canon <laughs> they don't actually what happens is they get lecturers who talk to them about the canon <laughs> and you know you might read a chapter of Locke, a chapter of hobbes but don't tell me you know Locke and Hobbes from reading a chapter. Don't tell me you know Kant from reading just critique of pure reason, even. So first of all, let's be honest with what we're doing, right? We're not inculcating students into a canon, right? What we're doing is we're 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 we're, we're trying to um, um, f- force them into a tradition, which we have an investment in. That's the first thing, right? The second thing is conversation. So um, uh, the master never, never knew what the slave thought and couldn't give a damn what she thought. And the master thought that the slave didn't think. But the slave, in order to creatively survive, had to know how she thought and how the master thought. From whom would you extract your understanding and explanation of slavery? And that is the principle by which we should enter into these conversations, right? Um, and again... At an undergraduate level, let's not presume, and of course, I doubt if anybody really presumes this, that students are going to graduate and then for the rest of their life, you know, their, their, their future, their, their humanity and their career is going to be dependent upon them having remembered read a chapter on property by John Locke. It's not 
It's not going to happen, and it doesn't happen, right? We all know that there's a much broader and deeper experience that, that university confers than simply, you know, remembering, right? So it's the, the nature and the ethos and the disposition of the conversation that we need to work on, right? And and let me say, let me say, I am not in principle against the idea that um, that one can do that, that one can have a different ethos, right? Um, and a different disposition, right? If 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 one is speak, if 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 one is um, doing, you know, at a, a, a university in um, northern England somewhere, right, or the Rust Belt in the US, which 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 um, might not do that much of what we would call the decolonizing stuff. I, I'm open to that, right, because what the decolonizing stuff ultimately wants to do is it, it, it is change the tenor and the commitment of the conversation right and and there are um effects of that if we're talking about a liberal education there are significant effects in terms of people's civic dispositions that come from that right so for me the 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 canon is a red herring it's a convenient and i don't i'm not dissing people i'm just saying Think about it deeply. You're not in, in, inducting anyone into canons. Even PhDs. I mean, grads, like, yeah, okay, so there's more of that, but really, nah, I don't know. Is the conversation worthwhile? There's a sense in which, I mean, it's not just the canon that's a red herring, but the curriculum also is is, is never is never enough, but we want to decolonize. It's not the curriculum, it's, it's the academy, it's the institution. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as well, your work. Um, the work that you do that goes beyond the institution. Um, when you um, you co-curate exhibitions with community elders and so on, and how you know that's part of your engagement with this, or maybe even part of your pedagogical orientation. Mm. So I mean, there's a there's a certain um, fallacy that we enjoy as academics, right? You know, if 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 you if you read. Emmanuel Kant, you know, you'll 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 get the the sense, or on Max Weber, you'll get the sense that you know the, in, the the intellectuals basically replace the hierarchy. So basically, the intellectuals become the new priests, but they do it in a profane fashion, right? Um, and and of course, you know, the un, university, at least the European universities, you know, come out of training, training, you know, for the church, right? Um, with all that comes this idea that some 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 profession is closer to God than the rest of humanity, right? And that that profession mediates the word of God. And in a profane sense, that's the assumption we have about the academy, that we we are closer to the human condition and the secrets of the universe, and that we are the mediators of those secrets and those revelations to the rest of humanity. Um, I, I, I reject that. I reject that simply because, especially in terms of politics, those communities who historically have worked on surviving the worst of politics, usually in principle, and this is not a um, vox popular, but these these communities, at least in principle, have traditions of thought and practice, which are the most um, illuminating about those politics, right? Um, and... And so I reject that premise that we're closer to God. 
Um, what we do have is far more resources, and those resources do bend, but you know, do afford knowledge knowledge cultivation. I, I don't dismiss that, right? Um, we have more standing, you know, in 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 the public. You know, you got a doctor in front of your name. People will at least let you finish a sentence rather than cut you off, right? Um, but all of that, to me, is quantitative. It's not qualitative. It's quantitative, right? And what we know that universities do is that they, by and large, cannibalize the areas in which they're situated, especially if they're close to urban areas, right? And all universities have a connection to the communities that surround them and the wider world. So it um, is um, incumbent on us not simply to critically situate our universities in, in practical terms in the areas that they're situated in the broader kind of connections that ensue from there, but also in intellectual, epistemological terms, right? To, to actually have a, a, a critical um, assessment of our craft itself, that we're not closer to God, we're just not closer to God. And um, that changes not simply the curriculum, but it changes the, the conversation itself. It changes the ethos of learning. It changes the sites wherein we learn and the relations that we build whilst we learn and who we include on what basis when we learn. Well, you've given me a you know, wonderful place to draw us in for a close. Uh, we've taken up so much of your time. Um, and I wonder if you could just answer one last question. Could you, could you tell us what you're currently working on? <laughs> really boring stuff man <laughs> just boring boring stuff you would want to know um i i i mean okay one there's a couple of things but one thing i'll say is that i've got a um a colleague here in, in political science called uh who's lester spence who's a, a american politics um guy and um we're we're, we're trying to put forward with another a couple of other people here um um drawing on the the the, the um the work and the expertise of people like Veshla Weaver. Um we're trying to bring in, in uh, we're trying to put together a project called um the right to the city. Um and within and and that is part of a broader thing that we're trying to do at Hopkins, which the department has has endorsed and put its put its back behind, right? Um which is to to try and scope out and cultivate a anti-racist political science and to try and envisage what that would look like in terms of scholarship and teaching. So I guess that's what, that, that might be wanting to say. How is that? That's not boring. That's really exciting. <laughs> no, no, because I don't know the other boring stuff I'm doing. <laughs> I get to do the exciting stuff about three hours a week. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for being here today. Um, I've had a great time talking to you. So did I, Yining. I'm, 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 I'm really glad you asked me to talk. I hope it was useful. And, and I look forward to seeing you stateside soon, man. Yeah, I hope so too. I'm just fall, to, <laughs> fall 2021. That's the, that's the hope. Yeah, great. You've been listening to a conversation with Professor Robbie Shilliam about his book, Decolonizing Politics and Introduction, Polity Press 2021. And you can find out more about the book by clicking on the bookshop link in the podcast description. I'm your host, Yiding Chang, and I'll see you soon.